shopping. Window shopping, you know. Window shopping is when you go and you stand in front of a store and you look at what's on display in the front windows. But you don't go inside because you know you can't afford what's in the windows, right? It's just too much money. So you just stand outside and you stare at what you see in the windows. Notice that I have a lumber store on the screen behind me right now because lumber is something no one can afford right now. So you window shop by staring and paying attention. Now, for those of you who don't go physically out, let me give you another example. Window shopping is kind of like going on Amazon and putting a bunch of stuff in your cart that you know you can't buy, right? Or on Best Buy or Etsy or wherever you go. Or maybe just hanging out on Pinterest for, you know, an hour or nine. You know, that's one of those things that is kind of like window shopping. Or if you're on a diet. If you're on a diet, window shopping is like going down to the Double K Ranch, standing in the window, and looking at all of those glazed donuts sitting on the shelf. Yeah, just, just watching. And if that's you, if you are on a diet, listen, we want to encourage you. Donut, give up, okay? Hang in there. Or as Yoda would say, you do or you donut. There is no try, okay? You, you hang in there. Window shopping is when you're on the outside looking in. I want to invite you to do that with me today. I want to invite you from the outside in to look at a moment in history. It's a moment that was 2,607 years ago. Now, you may be thinking, what in the world does this ancient history have to do with my life today? Well, this ancient history has everything to do with your family your friends, your home, your job, your school, your church, your community, your country, your world, and your soul. So pretty much everything to do with your life, okay? What we're about to look at at this moment in history has everything to do with your life today. It has an impact on your life today. How? Well, let's see if we can find out. Listen to Lamentations chapter 1 beginning with verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. This moment in history is sometime late 586 B.C., early 585 B.C. Prophet Jeremiah, we believe, is, is looking on the city of Jerusalem, the lonely city, the powerful city of Jerusalem. The city that was the city of the people of God had been invaded and destroyed. He's looking on the desolation. He's looking on the destruction. Lamentations is a book of five poems. The first poem here is what we're looking at, and, and these poems are poems of lament. Every poem is a, a different picture of lamenting to God, of crying out to prayer to God. Now, how do you lament? What does it look like? Well, the Bible gives some practical characteristics. Mark Brogoff has put them this way. We turn to God. We complain to God. We ask God. And we trust God. We turn, we complain, we ask, and we trust. That's the picture that we have in the Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't turn to other people in life for help. It just means that the, the clearest and most powerful way to deal with sin and evil and pain and suffering in life is to lament 
because lamenting forces us to turn to God. And the ultimate answer for pain and sin and evil and suffering in this life, the ultimate answer will only be found in God. So lamenting pushes us to turn to God. And the first part of this first lament is looking from the outside in. Looking from the outside at what's actually happened. Now, you may have driven by a a city or a town or a community where a tornado or a hurricane blew through there. You saw the devastation, the destruction. Maybe you've traveled internationally and you've been through a city that was destroyed because of war. But if you haven't seen those things personally with your own eyes, we've seen those things in pictures, right? We've seen those things in videos and on the news. We've seen destruction and devastation on an area. And those scenes are very similar to what we're looking at today. It's a a scene of devastation, a scene that looks like a natural disaster or, or a war has occurred. And as we walk through this poem, just as a point of reference, the language for the city, the, the language here is she and her. Now, that's kind of considered quaint and poetic. Most people don't say that anymore, but since this is a poem, it kind of works that it's poetic. So as we walk through this poem, you will hear she and her. It ain't talking about your Aunt Matilda, all right? It's talking about the city. It's talking about the people of God. So listen to how the poem unfolds. Verse 1. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. In the Bible, widows and orphans are always spoken of with love and honor, particularly because of the difficulties they face. Spiritual difficulties, financial difficulties, emotional difficulties, physical difficulties. I got a text this week from one of the widows in our church. She is someone who is faithful to personally minister to other people, particularly minister to other widows. This is what the text said. It is good that I have been thus afflicted to be able to have them whisper in my ear, I know you understand. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want someone who can sit next to us and say, I understand your pain. Listen, everybody can't do that. There's a lot of times I will not be able to sit with you and understand your pain. Your pain is different than my pain. My pain is different than your pain. And all the moments of life, all the painful moments of life are different for all of us at different stages. But as Tammy said at the very beginning, if you feel like nobody can understand your pain, God can understand your pain. And God is listening. But I'm so thankful for this precious widow that says, I'm going to take my hurt, my pain, my affliction, and I'm going to use it for the glory of God to the best of my ability. So I challenge you, with the same. Who can you minister to this week personally? Who can you reach out to personally? Who can you share your faith with this week? What neighbor can you help out this week? What church member can you call or text this week? What stranger can you introduce yourself to this week? I'm not talking about stranger danger here. I'm I'm talking about like, like people in this room, you know? Who, who in this church, do you go, I, I see them, but I don't know who they are. Don't come ask me. Don't go ask Tammy. 
just go over and say, hey, nobody bites. The biters are on the preschool hall. They aren't in here, all right? It's okay. Who can you go introduce yourself to today? In the church or, or in the community? Who's that person that every morning, the place you go pick up your coffee, you see that person all the time? Just say hey to them. Just say hey. Who, who can you minister to this week? You. Who can you make a difference in their life this week? There are people like widows and orphans and others that are experiencing difficulty this week. The entire city of God, they were experiencing physical difficulty, financial difficulty, emotional difficulty, spiritual difficulty. And they needed some help. The poem continues, verse 1. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She was a princess, now she's a pauper. She was Division One. now she's lost her scholarship. She was Premier League, now the team has folded. She was once super important in the world, among other nations, other countries, other cities. She was important, important in, in business and finance and commerce, important in culture. And now she's a laborer. She, she's working part-time at a pig farm. She weeps bitterly in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. She used to have a warm cup of tea and, and read a few pages of her new book right before she went to bed, but, but now she can't even cry herself to sleep. Ever been there? The poem continues. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her, they have become her enemies. She formed lots of alliances with other groups and other cities and other countries and other nations. In fact, she ignored some of the things that God called her to do so that she could make those alliances and those friendships. But then, in the moment that she needed help, those alliances didn't hold. She was on her own, stuck with her pride and her arrogance. Verse 3, Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. So this is good info. It's not just a city. It's not just Jerusalem. It's all of Judah. It's the entire nation. All of it fell. At least somewhere around 1.1 million people displaced. Many of them fled as refugees to Egypt. Now, in our country, there's lots of practical difficulties and lots of strong opinions when you start talking about refugees and, and immigration. But, but what if this happened to you? I mean, remember, these are Sunday church people, okay? This, this isn't some riffraff from across the tracks. These are God's people, Sunday church people. They lost their church. They lost their city. They lost their country. They lost everything they had to flee. Now, Lord willing, we hope we never have to face anything like that. But what if we did? What would we do? Where would we go? Would we turn to God and lament? Would we turn to God and lament and trust God? Or when our comforts are taken away, 
when how we want things is changed, when how we want things to be doesn't happen, will we turn against God? Will we say, where are you, God? Things are not the way that I want them to be. Those are tough, heavy questions, and I don't think we should ask them with some kind of depressing zombie apocalypse type of, of attitude. No, I think we should ask questions like that with an attitude that says, this, today, is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We will rejoice in God our Savior today. We will trust in God our Savior today because He is good, He is good, and His love endures forever. We ask the heavy questions under that umbrella that our God is good and His love endures continues verse 3 she dwells among the nations but she has found no rest they lost everything they had to flee to foreign lands they had to get any job that they possibly could just to get some food and there was no rest for the weary they'd work crazy long hours crazy hard labor and then they'd go home and they'd try to go to sleep and they couldn't because they were still so overwhelmed with grief over what they lost. Ever been there? Ever had a moment, a, a season of life where, where you couldn't sleep? Where, where you couldn't get any rest no matter what you tried? Verse 3. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. This sounds like what the Apostle Paul told the folks at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Paul's a regular Johnny Dangerously here. Goodness gracious, it's danger, 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 danger everywhere he went. That's what was happening to the people. They have been invaded. The city has been destroyed. They are fleeing. No matter where they go, they find themselves in danger. Verse 4. The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feast. Zion's a word that's often used to talk about the city of God or, or heaven or, or the people of God even or the church. And so here it has this feel of the, the city and the, the church feast and the church festivals and the church fairs. Nobody was going to them because the roads were destroyed. So nobody could even get into town. Verse 4, all her gates are desolate. The gates were the hotbed of the city, the hotbed of the entire country. And now they're desolate. I, I, I feel when I read something like this, I feel like I'm at the fair, right? Or like at a huge sporting event. Because what happens when you get to the gate? You know, at the gate, there's the, the ticket booth, and there's the, the souvenir stand and the concession stand, maybe a food truck, maybe somebody doing balloon animals and painting your face. I mean, there, there's always something at the gate. There's something going on. But not anymore. Nobody's at the gate. There is no fair. There's no game because there's no team. It's all gone. And I know somebody's thinking, goodness gracious, Dallas is so depressing. Come on, man. This ain't window shopping. This is window suffering. Come on. 
Stay with me, R2. Stay with me. We're, we're getting there. There's a, there's a point. We're getting there. Verse 4. Her priests are groaning, her virgins are afflicted, and she herself is bitter. Well, the pastors were bummed, right? Nobody's coming to church. Nobody's streaming online because the church isn't there anymore. So they're bummed out. And then the type of military destruction that, that came, it wiped out, killed many of the young men in battle. And the rest of the young men, they had to flee to other countries. And so there's not a lot of prospective husbands for the young ladies. And if you're standing on the outside looking in on this scene, what you see is a huge box of bitterness. You see an entire nation that's full of bitterness. And of course, that ancient history has no connection to our world today, right? No one can look on the outside of our country and see any bitterness, right? We don't see that anywhere, do we? There's nothing new under the sun. But you know, there's one question we had not asked. Why? Why did all of this happen? We're getting there. Verse 5. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper. Don't you hate when the biggest jerk at work gets promoted over you? Or the laziest, most gossiping teacher gets raised up to be the principal of the school? The worst people were in charge of the entire country and they were being successful. The worst people were in charge of the country, in charge of the city, in charge of everything happening, and they were successful. Again, no connections we can make today, right? Only perfect people are in all of our offices all over the land, right? Only perfect people are in charge of everything, right? Only good, perfect, godly people are in charge of everything in our lives. So why is all this happening? Verse 5. For the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Ouch. All of this is happening because of her sin and her transgression and her trespasses and her rebellion against God. Her grief is because of her sin. What does that mean? Well, for 40 years, Years, not for four Sundays, for 40 years, the prophet Jeremiah had been preaching to the people. He had been telling them that they were occasionally religious, occasionally spiritual, but mostly they were prideful and arrogant. He was telling them they weren't living in the power of God's grace and the power of God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his salvation. They were living in the power of pride. It's how they function. And so God allowed and purposed the city and the nation and the people to receive the wages of their sins. See, there's a salary for sin. And the salary is at the very least some type of temporary punishment. But if there's no repentance, if there's no salvation, then the salary becomes a permanent salary. And the permanent salary is separation from all that's good and holy and happy and joyful it's eternal separation from God. So God's people ignored God. Not just the not going to church people. 
not just the liberal nut jobs or the conservative cranks. No, God's people ignored God over and over and over again for decades. And when you start ignoring God, you start forgetting God. You start forgetting who God is. You start forgetting His ways. And then you start disobeying. They were ignoring God. They were forgetting God in his ways. They were disobeying God, but they were still going to church. It was how they lived. But their sin and their rebellion caught up with them. You know, in a sense, when you ask the question, why on just about anything in life, the answer is going to be because of sin. I mean, usually it is. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, something crazy with the mechanical system of an HVAC, but, but you know, usually when you ask the question why, you can usually trace it right back to sin. God has dealt with sin. The biggest problem in your life, the biggest problem in my life, God has dealt with. I know you think you've got a big problem waiting for you tomorrow at work or waiting for you tomorrow at the doctor or or wherever it may be or waiting for you this afternoon when you get home. But the biggest problem in your life, the biggest problem in my life is sin. And God has dealt with the problem of sin. Paul said this to the church at Rome, for the wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The final wages of sin have one destination. Everlasting death. Death that never ends. Death that you feel over and over and over again for all of eternity. But the free gift of God also has one destination. And that destination is eternal life. The free gift of God in and through Jesus Christ is everlasting life. Life over and over again. You feel and you feel and you feel and it never ends. And that life matters when it comes to the pain and suffering that we face today. The fact that there is a destination beyond this moment, it matters. Listen to the next part of the poem, verse 5. Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. Now this is where some people will say, look, I, I cannot believe in a God that allows people's city to be destroyed, allows their nation to be taken over, and even the kids get hurt. I, I can't believe in a God like that. Sharon Dirks has a PhD in brain imaging from the University of Cambridge. She's a researcher, an author, a speaker, and a teacher. And although none of us really have any easy answers for why people don't believe in God, she at least helps us think through this notion of why we won't believe in God. This is what she says. If you've ever found yourself asking why, to whom are you addressing the question? You see, if God doesn't exist... Is there really anyone to ask in an ultimate sense? Surely this is just the way the world is. Accidents happen, molecules make mistakes leading to diseases, and biology drives human behavior. But then she says this, The problem with this view is that it doesn't really help us make sense of the grittiness of life. That's where we are, right? We're in the grittiness of life. We get angry at suffering 
but where does that come from if this is just the way the world is? And here's her answer. The Christian faith makes sense of the rawness we feel in the face of suffering because the Christian faith says there is something wrong with the world. Things are not as they should be. We live in a world in which good and evil are at play on the world stage and in every human being. God is good, but evil is also real and has influence in the world for now. Just for now. So at first glance, it seems that suffering gives us good reason to rule out God. But actually, the opposite is true. It is only if God exists that our outrage at suffering finds a home. And then she asks, could it be that we ask why? Because God is real. In the moment that we say, why would God let this happen? That has to come from somewhere. And where it comes from is you have been created. I have been created to worship and enjoy God. We will or we won't. We'll worship and enjoy something. But we've been created to worship and enjoy God. It is part of our DNA. We'll worship something. And in the moment of pain and suffering, many people turn to the God they don't believe in. Or at the very least, they begin to ask, is there some purpose bigger than this? Could it be that we ask why? Because God is real. Well, God is real. He really, really has dealt with the problem of sin. The final wages of sin is death. That's the final destination, a death that never ends. You feel it over and over and over again. That's the language of the Bible. But the free gift of God in and through Jesus Christ, there's only one destination, and that's life. Life that never ends, life that you feel over and over again. three more lines of the poem. Verse 6. All her majesty has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her princes have become like deer that have found no pasture, and they have fled without strength before the pursuer. So she used to be the queen. She used to be the president. She used to be in charge. She used to have people. She had power and position. She had a government. She had land. Now she has nothing. And the princes that lived in the palace, well, they're like animals that live out in a pasture, but there's no grass in the pasture. So they don't even have enough food to have enough strength to fight or flee. They have no purpose. And that's the rest of the story with sin. The story with sin is always loneliness and desolation. It's desperation and discouragement. It's fear and anger and worry. It's no grass out in the field. That's the story of sin. All the stuff that we love, right? But the story can be different. How can the story be different? Well, we can repent. Instead of ignoring the sermon for 40 years, instead of ignoring the truth of God over and over again that keeps coming into our life from so many different ways, even from creation, Instead of ignoring God, we repent and we turn to God. And we complain 
to God, and we ask God, and we trust God. We lament. We write our own poem. And when we do that, the destination and the journey, the change. How? Why? This is what King David said. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down, not in pastures with no grass. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This is who God is. This is what God does. He doesn't always meet our needs, but He always meets. I mean, He always meet our wants, but He always meets our needs. Always. And our greatest need is the problem of sin, and He's met that in Jesus. So, take a moment. Step outside your life. Look from the outside in. Is the Lord truly your shepherd. Would your family and your friends and, and the strangers at the coffee place, would, would they say, yep, I don't know that guy, but something's good about him. Something's good about her. From the outside in, is the Lord truly your shepherd? Are you turning to God? Are you complaining to God? Are you asking God? Are you trusting God? Or are you ignoring God? Are you pretty much doing whatever you want to do, but you're still going to church? Or you're still kind of acting like you believe in God, you're just ignoring Him? Well, if you are turning to the Lord, if the Lord is truly your shepherd, then please understand this. The gospel is not window shopping. It is destination swapping. And when your destination has changed, everything else in life changes. When you know where you're going, when you know who you're going to be with, everything else changes. You see, the gospel is soul-saving and it is soul-satisfying. How do we know that? This is how we know. Scott Hubbard put it this way. Even in discomfort, even in rejection, even in the valley of the shadow of death, we shall not want. Even in loneliness, even in desolation, even in discouragement, even in the shadow of death, we shall That's why we keep turning to God. Because God has promised with all that is within Him that when we turn to Him, 